Hi, my name is Sharon Shimanova, and this is Chai Podcast. It was an absolute honor to speak with Dr. Alana Cooper, who was my first non-Baharian guest, but who undoubtedly knows more about the roots, dynamics, and origins of the Baharian culture than most of us these days. I stumbled on a YouTube video of a lecture that Dr. Cooper was giving and was immediately curious to know more about her, since it isn't often that you hear about someone in the academic world studying the Baharian Jews of Central Asia, especially in the framework of global Judaism. By perusing through her various publications and her book, Baharian Jews and the Dynamics of Global Judaism, I was enamored by her work, but more so her ability to connect with the experiences of Baharian Jews from an out-of-bubble perspective, so to speak. We talked about what prompted her interest in the Baharian Jewish community, her travels to Tashkent, Samarkand, and Bukhara during the time of mass migration in the 90s, and the way that her anthropological research influenced her relationship with her Judaism. I'm looking forward to learning more because I think the concept of somebody like studying and doing research on the Baharian community seems so foreign to me. I, that's why I find your scholarship so fascinating. Uh, great, thank you. Yeah, sort of a different perspective of kind of coming from the outside and looking in. Yeah, yeah. it seems almost unreal because I, I guess I always assumed that like, because we were so secluded that you know researchers and people that are studying ethno-religions just kind of glazed over it. So I'm excited to see that that is not true. Yeah, I mean, I will say also, like as a culture, I'm a cultural anthropologist and a lot of the work that I was reading before I started my, you know, when I was in graduate school, before I started my project, other anthropologists who have written about Jewish communities often choose to write about communities that their audience knows less about. Hmm. So in other words, if you're in the academy and you're writing in English and you're writing for a kind of Western audience, people are interested in learning about groups that are Jewish and so one can relate to them, but are sort of at further margins or the edges of the Jewish world. And so there's a kind of curiosity about that. So my work on Bukharan Jews, it fits into a whole genre of other anthropologists who've done work on communities that are at the edges of the Jewish world. That's beautiful. So I guess that'll actually uh, organically bring us into kind of the first topic that we we were talking about, um, primarily about your relationship with the Baharian community, how that came to be. Um, You know, was there a specific moment that kind of you were exposed to the Baharian community and that drew you in immediately? Or was it something that was more spread out over time? How did that come about? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you, I should just mention one thing. I, I always say Bukharan instead of Bukharian. I wanted to ask you. Yeah. And I just want to mention it because I do want to acknowledge the fact that the community in the United States does refer to themselves as Bukharian. But when I started my research, the immigrants that I was coming into touch with were not, um, their English wasn't great. And there, w- there wasn't like a term that had been developed to refer to themselves as Bukharian. And there was a kind of standard um, in the written literature that was 
actually Bukharin or Bu um, or Bukharin with um, just an A or Bukharin with a CH. Mm. Um, and usually like in Hebrew or in Russian, when I was talking to people, they refer to themselves as Bukharsky. Yeah. So I was trying to use the standard that was in the academic literature and also to translate into English properly, which my understanding was in America, we're American. From Bukhara, we're Bukharan. Yes. And I've kept that pronunciation because I started publishing that way. But I know that other scholars have chosen differently. Um, so I just want to acknowledge the fact that I'm using it as like a scholarly term rather than like an insider term, which is a choice that I made. I don't know if it's the right one, but. I mean, I actually, it was something that I meant to ask you because um, in some of my other interviews um, I did, and even in, in kind of my research online or on social media, I did notice that a lot of the time the, the spelling was just Baharan. Um, and I really wondered like, huh, I wonder why that is. Um, and I wasn't sure like if there was a correct, I guess, like was there a correct pronunciation or like a correct spelling? Um, but I really wonder why like through dialect, um, I guess maybe just like as a dialect thing, it just ended up being Baharian in um, America, but I'm very curious, I'm not sure. I, I think it's just because people were speaking in Russian and in Hebrew, yeah. Bukhari, Bukharski, and then added the A. But yeah. I was just talking in English. I wasn't translating from yeah. another language. So yeah. I think that that's my guess. But I have been reprimanded by like uh, around my writing by some members of the Bukharan community yeah. that um, using the improper name to refer to their community. And oh. yeah, I mean... It doesn't matter, but it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> but I've gotten those emails. Huh, interesting. But yes, like so a sensitivity, like a sensitivity around how we refer to ourselves. And you know, this is the term we use to refer to ourselves. You as a scholar shouldn't be coming in and using a different term, which I, I understand. I mean, that's that's the whole thing about straddling between I'm writing for an academic audience, which isn't necessarily the community itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, but members of the community are reading my work. So Right. Yeah. And of course, I feel like that's what makes it so interesting because um, I always wonder whether other Baharian people actually know about the work that you're doing and the material that you're putting out. And it's interesting to me that the majority of your audience is not, I guess, Baharian probably. Yeah. Although I would say the most like fulfilling emails and notes that I get, like that make me feel like it was all worth it was when someone sort of your, like your generation who was born in the United States, um, but grew up hearing stories about the old world from their parents or grandparents and couldn't make sense of it because it just sounded like the old grandmother tales. And like, it wasn't, and maybe that's what you meant when you said you couldn't believe it was real. Like for the people that I'm talking about, the letters that I get to them, it's like a fairy tale. And they don't, they can't really make sense of like the, the bigger picture. And so the best emails that I get when I feel like it was worth it was when I get someone who, you know, wasn't able to make sense of their past. And when they read my work, they're like, okay, now I get it, not just from the mouth of my grandmother or great grandmother, but I get it from a kind of broader perspective where I come from, where my family comes from. It's really like meaningful to me. I try to make a contribution to scholarship and to the study of Jewish history and everything, but um, 
but when it helps individuals who like make sense of their past and where they come from, it's very fulfilling. And that's actually what we're trying to do here, right? I mean, this process for me is so exciting. I think that although, of course, I've studied um, or attempted to do research on um, the Bahrain community, like in college and, you know, tried to do my best, but I feel like those were all kind of just scurried through papers that I wanted to get submitted immediately (laughs) as opposed to something that I really gave my life to. And I feel like um, the work that you've done is so important, especially for somebody like me who... I feel like, especially just what you were saying, like we do get all of these stories from our grandparents, our great grandparents, but I also have so many other questions. You know, there are so many things that are left blank and so many kind of missing pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Ashkenazi, let me start this way. I'm Ashkenazi the whole way back. Like okay. as far as we know, as far as we can trace, um, my, I'm like third generation American But my grandparents and great-grandparents all came from Eastern Europe. And I grew up in like a suburb in Maryland, the kids in my school, the kids in my synagogue, Ashkenazi the whole way. And that is more or less like the way I thought of the Jewish world. I I didn't know that there was like different brands of Jews. (laughs) So different kind of ethnic groups of Jews. So that's sort of my background. Now, my dad in the 60s spent a semester in Afghanistan. And as it was part of his graduate research and his teaching, he was in Kabul for a semester. And I grew up with kind of hearing stories about his time in Afghanistan and pictures from there. It had nothing to do with Jewish, but just like a fascination with that part of the world. And later I made connections that thinking about Bukhara, thinking about Samarkand, were very close to Afghanistan. So I just had an interest in that sort of cultural part of the world. Okay. okay. The next part of the story is that I grew up during the Cold War and the freedom for Soviet jury movement was like really a part of my youth. This idea that we are living, we American Jews are living in freedom in the United States. We can practice our religion freely, openly, be proud to be American and be Jews. And we knew growing up, it was an important story that the Jews in the Soviet Union were repressed, that they couldn't learn Hebrew, they didn't have that privilege. And there were many refuseniks who were trying to get out of the Soviet Union so that they could practice their religion freely. And it was like a mobilizing force around youth at that time was to write letters to our congressmen and senators and to go on rallies. And we had like bracelets with the name of refuseniks that we walked around with our pins. And um, so I always had a fascination with the former Soviet Union and this idea of like people having to practice in secret. Right. And maybe always like in the back of my head kind of wanted to learn Russian. And when the Soviet Union broke up, I was just, I I was in, like I was starting graduate school at that time. And I was trying to think in in cultural anthropology. And I was trying to think of what kind of a project I would want to do, what sort of research I wanted to do. And the Soviet Union was breaking up and all these immigrants that I had sort of grown up like in my imagination, like who these people were. And here I'm not talking about Bukharan Jews at all, because again, I did not understand that the Soviet Union was this varied ethnic place. I had like an Ashkenazi stereotype of what Soviet Jews looked like. 
And they were my cousins. Literally, actually, I did have cousins who came out when the Soviet Union broke up. And I was just like, I want to meet these people. I want to understand what their experiences were like there. And I want to um, connect with them here in the United States to find out, like, what is it like for them to kind of get re-exposed and to relearn the traditions that had been, um, they weren't, they didn't have access to for three generations. So I started to learn Russian and I thought I'm going to do my graduate research with some community somewhere. I didn't know Israel, New York, I don't know what, with former Soviet immigrants. That is where I was when I encountered the Bukharan Jewish community. So the story is that while I was in graduate school and I started to learn Russian and I was thinking about where I was going to do my research and with who and what exactly my research questions were going to be, I had a kind of year gap where I was like between where I was doing my master's and my PhD. And I said, that's it. I'm going to go get connections to the former Soviet immigrant community. And I decided I would teach in a school because there was a lot of Jewish schools being set up at that time to sort of help the immigrant children um, get acclimated to America and uh, immigrant Russian speaking children get acclimated to America and also um, to teach them about Judaism. So I said, what like a great way to improve my Russian, get entree into the Russian speaking you know, community and also make some money while I was between things. Right. So I interviewed, I went to visit like a number of schools in different parts of the greater New York area. I was doing my PhD in New York and I came to Queens. I, I don't even remember how I found that school there, Torah Academy. And they said, okay, great. We need teachers. You're hired. It was a very religious school. Um, they needed teachers to teach social studies, English, everything. The pay was like, oh my gosh, it was nothing. It was like $11,000 for the year. I taught seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh, twelfth. Oh grade. my god! No. <laughs> and the hiring process, like, was like that. It was like nothing. They didn't check anything. They just said, "Okay, come." And again, I knew nothing about Bukharan Jews. I was in Queens. I had no idea. I came to class on the first day expecting to see like my quote-unquote cousins, meaning the people who look like me—fair skin, curly hair, Ashkenazi, whatever. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh, these people don't look like me. I've never met Jews who look like this. They're not speaking Russian. They're speaking something else. Like, what is it? And they're saying that they're Bukharan or they're from Fergana or they're from Samarkand or Tashkent. Like, where is that? So that was like my entree into the community. And my students, I've loved them so much. I still have like photos of them and just oh. loved hearing their stories about where they came from and trying to wrap my mind around the fact that these people also were my cousins, but like more distant cousins. Right. And, um, and that it was a whole world that I didn't know anything about. And basically when I started asking the students about their lives there, one message was like driven home to me over the course of that year. Mrs. Cooper, they would say. <laughs> no, that's not what they said. I wasn't married then and I didn't have my doctorate. They said, Miss Cooper, Miss Cooper, if you wanna learn about our culture, if you wanna learn about our traditions, if you're serious, you have to go there. 
and you have to go now because everyone is leaving. Our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents, my grandfather is the last rabbi in whatever town it was. You have to pack your bags and you have to go now. And I did. I like found an opportunity to go. I went many times in the 90s. I went back and forth many times, but that first time was in 1993. And I went it's a whole story I can tell later, but I cobbled together like a small group and funding to go over there. And I took um, letters that was before the internet. People like didn't have email accounts or like we didn't have email then. So I took letters and photos from my students' families and I brought them there. And it was like my entree to say, I know your families in Queens, you know, tell me about your lives here and then to bring photos back. So that kind of started my connection. And then that's it. I was in, I couldn't stop. (laughs) That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. So this was in the early nineties then I'm curious specifically, do you remember where you went in your first trip in 93, which did you go to? Yes. So I I should say that I didn't organize it by myself. It wasn't easy to go in and out then. And also like I was a single young woman. I was like nervous about it. And so I worked with someone else, another student and another American student who had a connection to the the Jewish university in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the Jewish university in St. Petersburg, as the Soviet Union was like kind of falling apart and migration was starting this research institute had like a very clear vision that we have to go, we have to send little expeditions out to parts of the former Soviet Union that are emptying out to collect information before the whole community goes. Hmm. Um, And so this person who became a kind of research colleague, friend of mine, had this connection with the St. Petersburg University. So he organized the trip. I, I got funding And he organized a trip for me and for him and for a few students of St. Petersburg University and like one or two professors. And so we flew into St. Petersburg, then we flew to Moscow. And from Moscow, we basically visited three cities. This was our first trip. It was like a maybe three or four week trip. We went to Tashkent first and then to Samarkand and then to Bukhara and then home. And I remember when we got to St. Petersburg, I stayed with a family there and they were like, oh my gosh, you're going there. Oh, like for the people, the educated Jews in St. Petersburg, that was like back water, like primitive, whatever. She said, you're going to start in Tashkent and it's going to be like kind of Russian, like it'll be fine for you. But then you're going to go like deeper in to Samarkand and then (laughs) Then you're going to get to Bukhara. And that's like really the other edge of the earth. And I remember feeling so scared, like with each stop, like, okay, Tashkent, like, it's okay. It's okay. Oh my gosh, I'm in Samarkand. I'm handling it. It's okay. (laughs) But we had, it was such an amazing trip. I mean, it was like nerve wracking for me. It was my first time doing like real sort of travel, but it was just, just seeing like a, like a whole, a whole other part of the world that I had never experienced. Of course. Absolutely. So did you, were you able to notice the shifts that they had, they had prepared you for mentally? Did you notice the difference between like Tashkent to Samarkand to Bukhara? Like the, the, I guess you can say, I feel like the funding was different and like the, just the infrastructure of the cities was entirely, entirely, entirely distinct. 
Yes. I, it was so obvious, like even like through like first time eyes, because, um, you know, before I went, my students had like their Bukharan and they told me what cities they were from. But to me, it was all like the same thing, you know, like yeah. I, I couldn't make any differentiation, but it was so clear being there. Like later on, when I learned the history of Russian colonization and sort of the Russians making inroads and then the, the Soviets, the history was so clear to me about how the influence like first came from Tashkent and then Samarkand and later Bukhara was only incorporated into the Soviet Union, but wasn't part of the Russian Empire before that. And so, yeah, the Soviet influences in Tashkent were much bigger and it was a much more cosmopolitan place, um, sort of, you know, broader streets and bigger like Soviet block buildings and less. I felt like less of a sense of kind of small community. It was um, like a more disorienting, dizzying city. And in Tashkent, we we found the old Jewish mahala, the old Jewish residential quarter. But it was like, I can't explain it. It wasn't like vibrant. It didn't seem, it seemed like we were already like at the end of the era. And when we came to Samarkand, we stayed in the Jewish quarter, in the Jewish mahala. And then I had a sense, like, what is it like to live inside of a community, to buy your meat inside of the community, to socialize, to live near your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, for the kids to be able to, like, run on the streets on their own, because this is just a Jewish neighborhood. That's all it is. And it's little, little narrow streets. There's no street traffic. It's just foot traffic. But there was still a kind of a sense of Russian presence there uh, on the outside of the Jewish quarter. Like once you left the Jewish quarter, there were areas where Jews lived and there were synagogues out there that was more kind of busy, cosmopolitan, wide boulevards, tree-lined boulevards. And then in Bukhara, it was like that more sort of intimate, closer space. So yeah, I definitely had a sense of like the, the arc that that person had explained it to me in a negative way, but I actually experienced it in a kind of positive way in the sense of um, kind of tight-knit community, like moving closer and closer into a tight-knit community. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that in Tashkent, if correct me if I'm wrong, I think that even like the, there was much more diversity in Tashkent as opposed to in the smaller cities in the same kind of Fergana Valley and in that region. Um, Cause yeah. I remember just like from family stories um, and even from people who have been on the show, they've talked about how there are a lot of Korean people that would be in the city. Um, lots of Russian speaking, a lot of people who migrated obviously after the war um, seeking shelter and refuge. So it was, I think yeah. it was definitely a much more diverse space. Um, and ironically, I think that goes to show just how the stereotype now obviously is that like the Tashkent families are these like modern and like Russian passing individuals. Whereas like the, the families that came from the smaller towns are more, more traditional, more conservative. So I think obviously that's reflected in the history, um, especially given the fact that Tashkent was just like the more cosmopolitan city, as you've described. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that now already, like, it's interesting for me to hear that from you now, like 20, almost 30 years later, that like cultural memory is still prevalent, that it's oh, still yes. strong. Yeah. Oh yes. And even the, like the, um, I don't want to say nationalism because it's not nationalism, but that pride in like the city that you're from, like, oh yes, I'm from Dushanbe. Like you cannot, I'm not going to waver from that. And there's all of these like um, little jokes and stereotypical comments about like people from every city, but 
that's very real. There is a lot of pride when it comes to that, where their parents are from and where their families came from. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So back to, we're in 1993, you make the first trip over, you have this beautiful experience um, seeing all of the different cities or the three main cities um, of the region. So what happened then? So then I went back right away. Like I, so I had that grant to go there then. And then we were with one of the people that we were with in our small group in, uh, during that first trip uh, was a photographer and a kind of filmmaker. And he wanted to go back in the summer. That was the winter we were there. And it was like, as 1992 was turning into 1993, we were there like New Year's Eve. And then he said, I want to come back and do a film. And somehow I managed to get there. I don't remember if I got funding to help him with the film. It's hard to remember, but I went back for another two weeks and stayed at that time just in Samarkand. And kind of my, my Russian had gotten much better. I took like a more, I had already been taking Russian for a few years, but it was like horrible. But then at that summer I took an intensive class and we just interviewed people. And there's a film, a small film, maybe you had seen it. It's on, um, it's up, not on YouTube. It's on the Vimeo. Uh, that's his film then from 93. It was the summer of 93 that. that we did love, it. Yeah, I would definitely love to watch that. So did you kind of feel that mass exodus, like the people that were just literally packing up and leaving? Because it's in my mind, weirdly, because of all of the stories and stuff, they make it sound like people just were like packing suitcases and fleeing like something out of a movie, which obviously I'm sure it wasn't happening as, you know, cinematically or like dramatically. But I'm curious to know if as an outsider coming in there, like, did you notice that perhaps maybe like streets were empty or kind of any of that? Yeah. So I wouldn't use the word fleeing. Like, in the sense that I had from like being there, I didn't feel like there was like a threat or a danger and people were like, oh my God, if we don't leave tonight, you know, we're not gonna get out tomorrow. But there was a kind of, I don't know if I wanna call it panic, but definitely a sense of instability. Like we have to make decisions about what to do. Now, by the time I came in 93, I would say, I think close to 50% of those who would eventually leave had already left. So when the Soviet Union opened up, well, Glasnost in 89 and then the Soviet Union breaking up in 91, then maybe there was a panic because it was like so sudden and no one knew were the gates going to close again? What was going to happen to our assets? Like the, the chances now, if we don't leave, we might never leave. So there might have been a panic in those early years, um, you know, that early kind of year or two. By the time I got there, there was a sense that everybody's leaving. And in fact, I remember when we were doing interviews with people, we had a local, uh, you know, someone in Samarkand who was like an amateur filmmaker also, who was like accompanying us and helped setting up the interviews for us. And I remember he said to me, you keep asking people if they're gonna leave or not. He said, that's not the right question. The question is when. Mm. So by that time, there was a sense that everyone was going to leave, but they were trying to get their affairs in order. That was one thing, their affairs in order, meaning were they gonna be able to sell their house, You know, getting their immigration papers and um, deciding what to bring with them. And then the other question was like, where do we go? 
Should right. we go to Israel or should we go to America? And Israel was easier to get to. America was harder for a lot of people to get immigration papers to, but was it worth waiting it out for like another year or two? And then families with kids had like another consideration, which is like our kids are growing up and we want them to be able to get married, like, and like get acclimated to a new place and they're gonna stagnate here. They won't, people stopped working actually. Like it wasn't worth it to work there because the amount of money that people were making, I don't know, $10 a month or $20 a month, people knew like their relatives in Israel or in the United States, like that was like a penny. That was like, you could get ice cream with that. So people weren't working very much. There was, there was a sense of being in limbo at that time, um, a kind of discomfort. And the truth is I didn't come to document the immigration process, but it sort of was, maybe, I don't know if the word is got in the way or like intruded on every single conversation that I had. It was all people wanted to talk about for good reason. Well, yes. Yeah. And yeah, and I was in an interesting position because I was American, but actually when I went, that was in the early nineties, but then I sat, like I, I spent like several months there in 98 when I was, I finished my all my graduate courses. And then I went to go do like a big part of my research there. And then I really lived there. And at that point I was living in Israel. Hmm. So I was American, but I was living in Israel and spoke Hebrew fluently. And so people often drew me into conversations, even public conversations. So like get up in front of a group and to like advise, like, this is what Israel's like. This is what America's like. This is where you should go. And it was like so uncomfortable for me because like as an anthropologist, my mandate was to go in and find out what are people thinking? What are they saying? How are they making their decisions? And then they were putting me into this position where I'm like going to shape the way people are thinking about these things, which was like, it was odd. Yeah, um, fascinating. Yeah, but a few other things about the leaving is a lot of people were leaving with heavy hearts it was really hard and sad to watch. They didn't want to go, like their lives were wonderful there. Like the homes that they lived in, the neighborhoods that they lived in, like from a Western perspective, when, when I first got there, it looked like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like poor dirt roads, whatever. But once you're there for a week or two weeks or three weeks, you, you get to understand like, what it is to live in a neighborhood and what it is to live in a big house where like all of your relatives are there. And so a lot of people did not want to leave and they knew what they were going to be coming to. They knew because of their relatives, their relatives, they knew they were going to take their six, eight, 10 member family who were living in like three different houses around a courtyard. And they were going to pick up and they were going to go to New York into a big apartment block and put those 10 people into one tiny little apartment. And also like people who were past, you know, who were already like well into their careers or even like thinking they were on the edge of retirement, like to come to a new country and figure it out, the new system and the new language, like a lot of people didn't want to go but they understood that they didn't have a choice for the future because by the time I got there, so many people had left that the pull was like, you can't stay anymore. And so people left with a heavy heart. Like I, I cried sometimes at the conversations when people explained to me why they were leaving. And one time I asked a woman, I said, why are you going then? 
if this is like a sentiment, like, so why are people going? And she said, people are leaving because people are leaving. And it took me a while, like for that to sink in what it meant, but it is very, the relationships, the, the family and community relationships among the Jews there in Central Asia was totally different from what I was used to in the United States. In the United States, the way I grew up was you go to college, you get married, you set off on your own. Your parents live in Maryland, you go to California. Your parents live in Maryland, you, and I'm saying this like personally, yeah. my own family. You get married, you move to New York, you move to Boston, like, and you find your community there. Yeah. But the closeness of the community, the closeness of the social relationships was such that if people left, there was like no choice. If your brother left, if your cousin left, you had to leave. So people are leaving because their people are going. You have to follow along. So it was... um, it was really interesting for me to kind of watch at the personal level, the leaving, but also to think, and this maybe is like a bridge to like a bigger part of our conversation was I was interested in the experiences of the individuals there, but I was also looking at all of this through a macro lens of Jewish history trends. And this was also very powerful to me to kind of know the trend of Jewish history that Jews settle and they establish communities. And then either because of persecution or economic opportunity or whatever it is, they pick their bags and they leave. And to be witness to the end of one of the longest stories of Jewish diaspora history was monumental. And in a way it felt really sad, like to witness the ending. But I also, like with the sadness, I also recognize the fact that this wasn't because of persecution. It wasn't because of threat of communal violence. Like people were leaving for new opportunities, like new possibilities. And so it was sad to see the end of, like the closing of this chapter of history. But then I visited a lot of the people I met there in the United States and they're setting up new lives and have established new lives here in the United States or in Israel. And so there's like a a kind of mix of emotions there. Definitely bittersweet, I think, for sure. A lot of the time here, when we speak to the older generation, they talk a lot about the tensions between the Jewish community in that region and the Uzbek community and the way that those tensions really rose to a point where the systemic anti-Semitism, both from the Soviet aspect, but also from the Muslim dominated region. Um, and I feel like that created a lot of hostility. I, mean, I wonder if you picked up on any of that when you were there, if that was something that people talked about. Yeah. So again, I think it depends on the city that people were coming from, like people coming from Tajikistan. It was a totally different story. I I never went to Tajikistan. It was in the middle of a civil war. Yeah. And um, the Jews from Tajikistan were airlifted out because there was kind of anti-Tajik sentiment. So it wasn't necessarily anti-Jewish. It was those who were Russian or Tatar or Jewish or whatever, like with the civil war, there was a sense that 
And also I should say in the Fergana Valley, there was the same thing, but, and I didn't spend time in the Fergana Valley. I went like for one or two days, but I I didn't have a sense of the, the ethnic tensions there were different. I think it's the answer to the question of like tensions between the local Uzbeks and the Jews is it's very nuanced. It was not like that. It, it wasn't like a clear cut. Oh, you know, the Jews are, the, the Uzbeks are anti-Jews or the Uzbeks are persecuting the Jews. It was a very confusing time and the narratives were not consistent because on the one hand, there was a sense like we've lived here forever. We lived in peace with our Uzbek and Tajik neighbors. And they did, at least during the Soviet period, my sense, I wasn't there during the Soviet period, but my sense was that if there was an us versus them, it was us, Uzbeks, Tajiks, Jews against the Soviets. And once the Soviet Union broke up, there was a rise in Uzbek nationalism. And so Jews suddenly had a sense that they were being um, excluded from the project of Uzbek state building. But like the bittersweet story of this is our home, this is our roots, these are the people we live with, we lived in harmony with these people all along was one part of the story. Yeah. The other part of the story is there's tension, we can't find jobs, you know, like we're, we're being, ex- we're being uh, discriminated against in the university because we're Jewish, we can't live here anymore, we have to leave. But those two narratives were they were enmeshed with each other. It wasn't a clear cut sense of discrimination. And I think it depended on who I was talking to in what city and what time of day. And the other thing that I would sort of caution against in terms of like, understand how we understand the past is that we always understand the past vis-a-vis what's happening in the present. And so I think often, like, let's say tensions like Israel-Palestine tensions or Jewish-Arab tensions in Israel and the United States today become a lens through which people read their past experiences living amongst their Muslim neighbors. And it, it doesn't necessarily reflect what the reality is. So, yeah, I don't, I didn't have, I had very few incidents of people telling me about outright like hostility persecution we have to leave because of that there was a lot of subtle things and it's on both sides of it right I mean I think it's very um, interesting for me as just like a person that would be surrounded entirely by just like anecdotal recollections and things from their own personal experiences and it's interesting how it is kind of true in, in the sense of what you're saying of like, it depends on when you ask or like what time of day it is, because there's gonna, always going to be a different answer. I can ask my grandparents one day and they'll be like, oh no, we just came here for a better life. But then I'll ask like one of my aunts or one of my uncles and they'll be like, oh no, the hostilities were too high. Like we just couldn't stay there. Like we were being thrown out almost. And it's, it's always been a little bit frustrating to me because in my mind, there was no way to fact check it because I thought that there was no kind of anthropological or sociological studies of the region or of the Bihari community at large. So now this is a really exciting moment for me to just be able to like kind of reframe the narrative and pull it away from like the subjective and kind of just think of it objectively on a grander scale. 
rectify some things and correct some things that might be uh, misconstrued in, in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I have a few things to say about that. One is in terms of the fact checking. In a way, you can't really, there is no fact checking because not just because the data doesn't necessarily exist out there, but because it is the subjective experience, which shifts over time. And like you're saying, our experiences of feeling like at home or feeling comfortable, it's changing, it's dynamic. So that's one thing. The second thing is I did write an article called Where Have All the Jews Gone? that sort of distills the different factors that help explain the mass migration. And it is this kind of a nuanced approach. The third thing is, again, sort of looking from a macro Jewish perspective, the fact that you're hearing like different things from different relatives and at different times, I think it's really the story that you're telling is part of a story of the Jewish condition writ large. So not just the Bukharan Jewish, story, but the Jewish condition writ large. And by that, what I mean is we are a diaspora people. We make our homes in places. As I said, we settle there, we build our homes, we're comfortable, but there's a sense of both at homeness and a sense of outsiderness throughout the course of Jewish history, Jews, wherever they lived, if it was in Poland, if it was in Ukraine, if it was in Moscow, if it was in Uzbekistan, it's like a trope that repeats over and over again. And so the fact that people look back and say, we were persecuted, we had to leave, or no, we had beautiful lives there, we had beautiful homes there. Those two things are part of the diaspora condition. And so it fits into like a bigger Jewish narrative, I think. That's so interesting. So I guess this actually brings us to, let's talk a little bit about your book. So did the work that you did throughout the nineties kind of being on the ground and actually sharing this moment with the natives, I guess you can say, did that, was that the push that you needed to really put your work into a more like concise format and really publish um, the book or was it something else? Yeah. So the book and my thinking about what I saw includes both ethnographic information by that what I mean is like what I saw on the ground when I was in Uzbekistan and also when I sort of traced these families that I met in Uzbekistan to their new homes in the United States and Israel. Um, But it was also historical research, um, archival and historical research. And I wasn't trying to like do like, this is the history of the Bukharan Jews. Like, I had like a specific agenda or a specific question in mind. And the book is all kind of centered around that question. And the question that I had was, it sort of stemmed from my first trip there. And also from my first experiences in the high school that I told you about, where it was on the one hand, the sense of like, this is so foreign, like, this, I can't even relate to it at all. The people who I'm meeting, they don't look like me. They don't speak the language that my grandparents are, you know, the Yiddish that I don't, I didn't grow up speaking Yiddish, but my grandparents, great-grandparents spoke. Right. They have different food than we do, different kind of cultural norms. Like these people are different on the one hand. On the other hand, this crazy sense that when I entered the the Jewish quarter in Samarkand and Bukhara and was like welcomed in that somehow we were cousins. Like somehow we were related. We were part of the same people. 
And so the persistent question, that's like the personal way of putting it, but the, the kind of the larger question was, how is it that this Jewish community at the edges of the Jewish world have both formed this distinctive group with its own culture and had a, a history very separate from the history of Jews in what's considered traditionally the centers of the Jewish world. And yet they've maintained a connection to the Jewish world. Like after 2000 years of history, why didn't they just snap off? Why are we still cousins? Like, so I'm, I was kind of looking at the dynamics of how the Jewish world, and I was using the Bukharan Jews just as a case, but how the Jewish world has maintained itself as both this kind of grand, very wide and deep, disparate sets of communities on the one hand, and on the other hand, managed to maintain a sense of commonality, of common belonging to a Jewish people or having a common Jewish history. So when I was there, what I was really looking at, it wasn't the mass migration, but as I said, that was just like in the background, I couldn't help but notice it. But my key interest when I was there was once the Soviet Union broke up, there was a bunch of Jewish organizations from Israel and the United States that ran in because they wanted to kind of reconnect. And I'm putting reconnect in air quotes because of there's so much in that term, what it means to reconnect, reconnect with these Jews who, quote unquote, forgot their Judaism because they were living under Soviet rule. And we have to reteach them what it means to be Jewish. And all of this is in air quotes, okay? Uh, meaning I'm speaking from the perspective of the organizations, not from the perspective of the Bukharan Jews sitting there. We have to reconnect them. We have to reteach them. We have to bring them back to the stage of Jewish history. And what I was interested in looking at when I was there was like, how do the local Bukharan Jews respond to this? Like they've been practicing Judaism all along. It took a different shape than the Jews in Jerusalem or the Jews in New York because they're in Central Asia under Soviet rule. But how are they responding to these outsiders coming in? So I was kind of looking at the tensions between the push to preserve our own local customs on the one hand and the pull on the other hand to kind of be part of the wider Jewish world. And what I figured out when I was there and when I started doing my research was this was not a new story, meaning it wasn't like 1991, 1992, 1993, suddenly the Sukhnut comes in, the Chabad comes in, Midrash Faradi comes in, and they start, you know, reteaching the Bukharan Jews what it means to be Jewish. This story is very old. It's happened so many times over the course of Bukharan Jewish history because we have a tendency to say, oh, you know, they're so isolated, so far away. But no, over the course of Jewish history, there have been periods of isolation punctuated by moments of reunion. Mm -hmm. So because of kind of international geopolitical circumstances, what I was seeing in 91 had happened many times over the course of history. So the way my book is structured is around three separate moments of reunion. The contemporary one, meaning the one I was seeing in the post-Soviet era, and then two earlier ones. I love the fact that you were able to get a better sense of your own personal Jewish identity through that process. I think that that's absolutely poetic in a way. I do feel that it's interesting to, to frame it from that perspective. I mean, I, I think that 
from what I've gathered, practicing Judaism in that kind of, um, I guess you can say Western way was not something that a lot of people that were living there were doing it through their lives. It was especially in like the main city of like Tashkent, for example, it was just not something that you talked about. Like my grandmother was just telling me about how it wasn't until her father had died that they even that they even found out that he spoke Hebrew, like read Hebrew, that he had hidden like Torahs and little prayer books all over their house. But it was completely a secret, like his own children didn't know. And I'm interested in the way that the foundations kind of, of course, their intentions were well-founded, I'm sure. But I'm curious to know how that must have felt as like people who were still there, how that must have felt to have all of these Western individuals coming over and being like, oh, let's just, let's, let's help you with what you've kind of been doing this whole time. Um, it's this weird moment of like, I, I imagine it would be like, wait, I've been doing it wrong. Like <laughs> this strange kind of jarring experience. Oh, yes, it was. And I heard really interesting stories. I'll, I'll tell you one, for example, where there was an issue about the kashrut of the, the meat, how the meat, how the cows were being slaughtered. And some like representatives from one or two of these organizations um, was their understanding coming in there was that the local rabbis or religious authorities were not doing it properly. They had forgotten some of the ways to do it properly. They didn't have the right knives and um, they kind of made an effort to reach out to the local shokh team, the, the ritual slaughterers and to like try to have seminars or classes with them to teach them. And I remember hearing one rabbi stand up. It was like in a public forum, like a local shokhat. And he stood up and he said, we have been practicing shrita for 70 years under communist rule. We didn't have schools. We couldn't get officially certified that we're shochtim. We had to study underground and we had to risk our lives to do this. And you young kid, this was like an older man with a big white mustache. You young kid, like a 20 year old, 25 year old kid, like from Israel is coming in. And you're telling us that we're doing it wrong. No, you leave. And it was very, very powerful sort of about like what it means, what normative Judaism is and what it means to practice Judaism. That's like one example. And I'll tell you from the, the women's side of things. So in the United States, by the time I went in the 90s, the if I was going to go buy kosher meat in the United States, like I just went to a supermarket and not a supermarket, like a kosher market. And I bought the slab of meat that was, I didn't know where it was cut or where it was processed or where it was killed or anything. I just bought the slab of meat and I made it, right? Yeah. But in, let's say Samarkand, you didn't just buy a slab of meat. Like you went to the cow, to the man who like butchered the cow and you got the slab of meat and you came home. And if you were a good Jewish woman, you salted the meat. Yeah. And it was a whole process of salting the meat and like how you did it. Something like I had never seen before. I didn't even know that keeping kosher like involves salting meat. Like maybe I read it in a book, like whatever. But in terms of my own experience growing up, that wasn't part of keeping kosher. Keeping kosher was you go to the kosher, the kosher butcher store. But these women were like, you don't salt your meat. And I was like, well, why? It's like someone does it for me. And they're like, that this is how we make it kosher. 
this is how we make meat that we can eat is like, this is our role as women is to salt is to do this process of salting the meat and draining it and resalting it. And it made me realize like keeping kosher isn't just like an objective category. It depends on where you are and what the local circumstances are. And this was like a very powerful um, understanding for women of what it meant to be a good Jewish woman that had nothing to do with my own reality. So there is like the idea of like, oh, they keep kosher, they don't keep kosher. It's so nuanced depending on what your kind of local circumstances are. Like the Jews there, when I ask, do you keep kosher? Everyone, not in Tashkent, in Samarkand and Bukhar, do you keep kosher? Everyone, oh my gosh, everyone said they kept kosher. And then at a certain point I was like, I wonder what that means to them. Like when they say they keep kosher, like in my mind, what does it mean? It means like, well, when I go to the grocery store and I buy processed goods, I have to look for the little OU. But like, they don't have any processed goods here. They're, they don't have like an OU stamp. Like they're just going to the markets and buying tomatoes and watermelons and buying like meat. So like when they say, oh yes, we keep kosher, what does it mean? So finally I said, what do you mean when you say we keep kosher? And they said, well, we don't go to the bazaar to buy our meat, meaning we don't go out of the Jewish quarter to the big bazaar that's open to the like Uzbek, Tajik, Soviet public to buy our meat. We only buy our meat in the machala. We only buy our meat inside the Jewish quarter. That's what it means to keep kosher. So they didn't have a sense during the Soviet period, they didn't have the books and like, you know, the textual learning but they had a tradition that was passed down from grandmother to granddaughter of what it means to keep kosher. And it means to buy food from your local space, the local Jewish space. And so like I can go now to my local grocery store and they have kosher chickens there. So I'm going to quote unquote the market, like the big bazaar that everyone's going to Trader Joe's and I'm just going and grabbing my chicken and it's an empire chicken. But to them, to keep kosher meant you buy your food and ingest your food in local Jewish space. That's something different. So there's like a whole way of the outsiders coming in and saying they keep kosher or they don't keep kosher. They're doing their weddings right or they're not doing their weddings right is like a certain standard that they're using. But unless you're there inside, you don't understand how those categories are interpreted and understood from the inside. That's what I was really interested in. A lot of the stuff that you're saying is for sure resonating with the material that I've kind of absorbed throughout the years when my relatives and my cousins would be getting married and they would go to like the rabbis and they would need to produce um, like their parents' Jewish marriage certificate in order to kind of like prove that we are Jewish. And I remember when my sister went to the rabbi and provided them with my parents' Jewish license, or like, I don't remember what it's called, but essentially the license, the rabbi looks at it and was like, this isn't like, I don't even know what this is. They were really fully were just like, I don't know what paper you guys signed, but this is not a real marriage certificate. Um, And it was because of course, like my parents, my family didn't speak Hebrew. They couldn't, they couldn't speak it alone, read it. So they were just kind of doing it for the sense of like tradition and for the sense of the event and the party of it all, I guess. Um, Wow. And it was insane for them to be like, 
what do you mean? My mom was like, why did I keep it for so long that like 30 years, what was the point of me keeping it if it wasn't real? And if it wouldn't have been for that moment, they would have never known because yeah. Cause in the sense, like there, it was just, we're doing our best. You know what I mean? Like who knows if this rabbi is a real rabbi air quotes, or like, if this paper is the real deal, we're just doing it because we're trying to hang on to our roots as much as possible. We didn't really know what to do because with in front of the rabbi, like, what are you going to say? Like, I'm sorry. I don't, you know, there was this awkward moment and a lot of rabbis were just like, I can't marry you guys. Like this document is unofficial. What happened? Like, I mean, we needed to, obviously they went to like a couple of different rabbis, um, to eventually get to one that was willing to, to work with us. Um, but it's interesting even because in like the contemporary sense there there's this new wave of people that are really getting into like being religious and keeping kosher in a more um standard way i guess you can say um and they're pulling away from the concept of like judaism is more a matter of tradition as opposed to a matter of religion and that has created i guess you can say a bit of a shift um and a lot of the rabbis in this area at least um some of them are just like i won't they're much more uh strict i guess with the rules which is interesting and my my family always talks about it they're like i don't understand how you can be so strict with the rules like we spent all of our lives back home like in the old country and kind of just winging it we were just seeing how things go um and now there's this like standard and hierarchy and this framework that they need to abide by that they're kind of like not not sure how how they fit into it right how to navigate that yeah was that first rabbi that they went to with the marriage certificate a Bukharan rabbi I don't know if if they were Baharian, but I do know for sure that they were Orthodox. Um, I think that they might have been Ashkenazi, though, because my brother-in-law is not Baharian. So it, okay. the Baharian rabbi was like, we're not marrying you, period, because you're not Baharian. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Like they won't, the Baharian rabbis won't, um, they won't conduct a Brit if both parents are not Baharian. They won't do a marriage ceremony. Like it's very strict. They're, they just kind of say no. Why? I don't know. I wish I knew. And that's why a lot of people who like are not religious are kind of like, why? What is the big, what's the problem? Um, but it's strange. Yeah, there's this weird I guess like hierarchy, I guess you can say. And if you, of course, it's like awkward then because in addition to the general stigma of like wanting to stay close, stay connected, maintain that tightly knit community. And then you're trying to marry someone who is not within the community. You're already faced with all of this kind of pressure. But on top of that, then like the actual marriage process is even more strained because the Bahrain rabbis are just not not down for it at all. That's why I'm so intrigued by the work that you've been doing in terms of like how um, the Baharian community has constantly had that kind of like ebbing and flowing with the Jewish religion in like this, the lens of like the broader global Jewish world. Um, and it's interesting how now they're really, I would say that the community is really, really trying to hang on to that Jewish aspect, but in a much more exclusive way, like exclusively just for Baharians by Baharians. Um, because I feel like at this point they're just holding on for dear life. That's the only real explanation that I can think of. But will they not like if, if someone is marrying someone outside of the community that has like some Jewish lineage going back, back, you know, but they're Ashkenazi, like, is it just about converting or is it just about, or is it non-Bukharan? 
Yeah, no, it's non-Baharian. Like my brother-in-law, he went to Sunday school. He had a bar mitzvah. Like he's fully Ashkenazi. He's more Jewish than we are. I mean, I can tell you, he knows more than uh-huh. we do. But yeah, he he was not Baharian. So they were like, we can't help you, which doesn't really make sense to me because Judaism is Judaism. Um, but right. yeah, it was very, very jarring to kind of be um, sent away and rejected almost in that sense. Right. Well, it's also interesting because I've noticed just by kind of looking like internet searches that the rabbis in the Bukharan community now are like the, they're wearing the black hat garb. Yes. 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 So they like, they're, I, I don't know where they're getting their training, but they're, it's not like they're preserving the Bukharan Jewish culture. Like, I don't know. It's a strange that's what makes it so, it, it makes it, yes, it's very, it's almost frustrating because you, there's no justification for it. But the part that's surprising to me is like, if they're becoming more Haredi, then I would assume yeah. that that would mean that they want to be kind of accepted or connected to the wider Jewish New York community. Yeah. I think that for me personally, at least religion was not something that was like in the forefront of my upbringing. We always kind of, of course, we had like the Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. We knew the holidays and we always had dinner and we always got together, but it would always be ironic how like my grandfather, my father would be like butchering the the language because we don't know what we're doing. Um, But we'd always just laugh and laugh it off because we would say that all that matters is the tradition and we're doing our part to make sure that it keeps living on and we're staying together and we're staying true to our culture. Wow. Um, Well, I have to say, if I was advising a student to go do another dissertation, it's, it's very interesting just to see the kind of the efforts towards continuity and kind of adapting to Judaism in New York. And there's a lot going on there. Wow, that's so interesting. 